Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this, the last of our sermons in this series about what to do when the going gets tough. I hope that over the last few weeks, you, like me, have found that indeed the tough do get going. Not one of our characters has rested on their laurels. They've all risen to the challenges set before them, although some in more positive ways than others, it has to be said. So what about this last person in our list, Haggai? What did he do? I can honestly say that I've never preached about Haggai before, but as I have spent time with him and his little book in the last few weeks, I wonder why, because it strikes me as such a powerful reminder of our call to be disciples and what that really means. So who was Haggai then, and why is his tiny book of just two chapters in our Bible? The Hebrew prophets had been promising for centuries that if the Israelites didn't change their ways and follow God, be more obedient and just, etc., then they would find themselves in exile, the temple finally destroyed. And it all happened in 587 BC. You can read about it in 2 Kings 24 and 25. Clearly, though, this is not the end of the story. Those same prophets always said that there was still hope because God would eventually bring a remnant of changed people back to live in Jerusalem with a new temple and his presence would be with them. In 520 BC, the time of Haggai's book, the Babylonian Empire has recently collapsed and the Persians are now ruling the world. And they were happy for some of the exiled Israelites to go back to their ruined city of Jerusalem if they wanted. And a small group did. Joshua, the high priest at the time, and Zerubbabel, a descendant of David, took a small band back there and they began to rebuild, starting with homes for themselves. You can read about this in Ezra chapters 1 to 6. The future looks really bright, in fact, unless, of course, you are Haggai. His book is written in four sections, which all take place in a period of about five months. One commentator I read has calculated with various calendars that, in fact, the story all begins around the 29th of August in that year. What a coincidence, as this sermon is for Sunday the 30th of August. Actually, as I reflect on this, I find it really challenging. Is this a message that God is giving to us for today, too? But more on that later. In the first section, which we read from chapter 1, Haggai makes his prophetic accusation. You're spending all your time and resources making sure that your own homes are perfect, but what about God's house? Their response, verse 2, It's not yet time to rebuild the temple. They don't seem to see that he's really asking a deeper question. Are your own homes more important than your allegiance to God? The temple had been in ruins for 70 years, but somehow the Israelites were not able to see that that was important and could even have something to do with why life was being so difficult for them. They've planted lots of crops but harvested very little. When they've had a drink, they've still felt thirsty. They've even put on extra clothes when the weather turned colder but not felt any warmer. They've earned wages but put them into purses seemingly full of holes, in other words, spending more than they've earned. They were putting in so much effort but for very little reward. Why? Haggai goes on to quote from Deuteronomy 28 about the covenant curses. Basically, he says to the Israelites that it is as if you are rebelling against God's covenant. You need to change. He reminds them of the relationship that they are supposed to have with God. 
You can compare this with our reading from Mark 12, verse 30. Eventually, they take notice. He tells them to go and cut timber from the hills to build a new temple to honour God. Do it just for him, he says. Amazingly, they are convicted. They do as asked. They listen to Haggai's message from God and they set about rebuilding the temple. But a month later, God has Haggai say something else to them. It's not very grand, is it? Haggai asks who can remember what Solomon's temple was like, because this is nowhere near the same. Well, of course not. How could it be? Not many people could remember. It was 70 years ago. But they would have been told the stories of how incredible the temple was. He reminds Joshua, Zerubbabel and all the people to be strong and to get on with their work because God is with them, just as he was with the people as they left Egypt all those years ago. And again he speaks of how Jerusalem will be rebuilt and will be vitally important once more as it takes its place in God's kingdom. The temple has an important part to play in all of this, he says. It needs to be splendid. He tells the people to work with hope, even if that's not quite how they feel at the moment. The next time we hear from Haggai is two months later, verses 10 to 19 of chapter 2 when he calls the people to remember again God's covenant with them and to think about how faithful they are being to it. He does this using storytelling. It's such a great way of helping people engage with big ideas, even today. He talks to a group of priests about ritual impurity. He asks them about the laws around dead bodies. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil or other food, does it become consecrated? The priests answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest said, it becomes defiled. Can you imagine the scene? The priests are all looking at Haggai. Why is he talking to us about dead bodies and food? And then comes the crunch point. As the message translation says, Haggai said, So this people is contaminated. Their nation is contaminated. Everything they do is contaminated. Whatever they do for me is contaminated. God says so. You can almost see them squirm in their seats, can't you? Are we contaminated then? Haggai goes on to remind them of their time before the rebuilding of the temple began. He explains it like this. Their apathy and injustice was reaped in just how few crops they were able to harvest. In other words, they were impure too, just as if they had touched a dead body. Everything they then touched was defiled as well. The building that they did, the crops they planted, the clothes they wore, none of it was as it should be, because they were not following God's laws properly. Haggai says, if they can change their ways, repent and become faithful again, then there will be blessing. He repeats several times, give careful thought to this. In other words, you really need to work this out. Think about it very carefully. What needs to change for you to be blessed once more? Israel's future is in their own hands. God is waiting for his people to be faithful. It's very similar to the challenge that Moses gave to the wilderness generation several times before, the ones who wandered round and round for 40 years. A 
obedience and faithfulness will lead to blessing, while unfaithfulness will lead to misery and ruin. The book concludes with Haggai's last few words to the Israelites that same day, reminding them of the future hope for God's people and his kingdom. He talks about destroying evil nations, overthrowing royal thrones and powerful foreign kingdoms. He even reminds them of what happened in Egypt, overthrown chariots and riders as they followed the Israelites into the sea. Finally, God reaffirms his promise of a chosen leader from the line of David. Of course, Zerubbabel is from that line for his new kingdom. So do Haggai's generation experience all this? Will they turn from their current ways and become faithful again to God? Will Zerubbabel take up the challenge to be the saviour of the people? Well, to find out, you need to read the next two prophets in the Bible, Zechariah and Malachi, and their stories. But it seems to me that this little book actually contains a great challenge to every generation of God's people, including yours and mine right now. Someone put it this way, There are three things we need to notice in this book. First, our choices really matter. Second, the faithfulness and obedience of God's people is part of how God has chosen to work out his purposes in the world. And third, this surprising truth should motivate humility and action in God's people as they look forward to God's coming kingdom. I wonder what thoughts are going through your mind right now. Thinking back, I'm reminded of Esther and are wondering, was she queen for such a time as she found herself in? And of Jonah and his hard-learnt lesson that God really is in control. Have we read Haggai today because he is for such a time as this for us? As I said earlier, I had no idea about the date business I mentioned, but when I discovered it, it did seem somewhat significant as we face the traumas of the current COVID-19 pandemic and the havoc it is wreaking on our everyday lives and the questions we are currently facing as church and community. Haggai's little book asks the simple question, why aren't the Israelites putting the first thing first? Why is their relationship with God not the most important thing for them, but it comes before all other things of life? And is this true of me too, or of you? Looking for a modern day example of this kind of thing to share, I decided that actually we are it, us together now on the 30th of August 2020 and beyond. As we look back to days that in our mind's eye we recall as glorious, foolish churches, lots of social action, a gentle, more just and slower society, I wonder where God seemed to be then And as times have moved on and generations changed, life has become faster with less justice and social action work happening, even though actually more is needed. The churches are less full. Where is God? But maybe even more importantly, where are we? Have we become like the Israelites? Have we stopped giving God the first place in everything? Have we stopped Loving the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind and with all our strength? Has he moved down the pecking order in our hearts? If we have shifted his place in our lives, might that just explain a few things about the struggles we are living with right now?
Haggai shows us our choices really matter. Where God comes in those choices is vital as us for individuals, but also for us as a church. I wonder what God is saying. Might he be asking us to rebuild something new? As we begin to work out how to meet together again for worship, what will be the real focus of that new worship, or rather, who? Perhaps we will want it exactly as it was before. Maybe the music is important or the words we say. Well, yes, all these things matter, but the most important thing is surely to keep the first thing first, that we come together either physically or still with our paper and email as best as we can to worship God with our very being. The how of that is perhaps not as important as the fact of it, surely. For some of us, being together will still remain a way off. And in fact, we can never go back to what was, because as people we have and are all being changed by this experience. But what does remain the same is the fact that God wants us to put him first in everything. And with that obedience and faithfulness, there will be blessing. And not just blessing for us, but for many others besides. Which takes us to the second point, that the faithfulness and obedience of God's people is part of how God has chosen to work out his purposes in the world. God will use us in the world. As we consider our second church plant, God is way ahead of us and has already begun to put things into place that if we are obedient and faithful, will bring a blessing to some of the poorer parts of our parish and town. But will we be what he needs us to be? Or will we get distracted into building our own things rather than what he wants us to build. The very fact that God wants to use us for his glory should surely take us to the point three. Are we then motivated to humility and action as we look forward to God's coming kingdom? Are we putting him first and keeping him first? Haggai 2.18 ends with, From this day on I will bless you. As God's people humble themselves and really put God first, so he blesses them. As I attempt to live a holy life in my every day, God will bless me with an intimate relationship with him. But will I let him? Will I really let him have the first place in my life, before everything else, before my family, my friends, before my personal preferences about worship, my hobbies, my TV watching, the things I do with money, Will you let him have first place in your life in all these areas and others too? And what about as a church? Are we letting God have first place in our corporate life as well? When it comes to prayer, are we really focusing on what he wants us to pray about? How can we know if we don't ask him together? What about mission? Are we all working for this in the ways God wants? And giving? In these difficult times, money is at a premium, but who and what does God want us to support and how? If we are really putting the first thing first, i.e. God, then I suspect we will have to humble ourselves and ask for his help to be the people he wants and needs us to be for this time. And I suspect he will want change, well in me anyway, some rebuilding in our everyday lives of faith. What does the blessing of the Lord look like today? So are you up for this? 
Are you prepared to let go of the past and look to the future together? The going is tough at present, but will we get going on the rebuilding, on putting God first in everything, asking forgiveness for giving other things the first place in our lives, even if not deliberately, and instead giving again our life to Christ, to love and serve him with all that we are and all that we will be. Amen.